The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 20 of The Ascent of Board Games. I'm Brian. I'm here with Joe, who is mildly sick, Frank and Jason, who are currently healthy, and Mike may be dead. He's not going to be joining us today. He was real sick last night. Yep. I blame personally the fact that we were playing our massive Nearlathotep campaign, and he was the first PC to cast a spell, and things went weird from there. So they did. Oh. He may be possessed by the great race of Yith right now. We're not sure. It's, hard. it's really hard to be sure. <laughs> oh, blowback's a bitch. <laughs> so we are here today to talk about drafting games. This one was relatively straightforward. It's a game where you have a bunch of things to choose from, and you pick one of them and then pass the remainder on to one of your opponents. So this is specifically not games where you have a shared market, right? So games like Ascension and Sagrada, where there's a shared market, it's a kind of drafting, right? But that's not pure drafting, right? It's like markets purchasing with a shared market, which is what we're not doing today. Yeah, we are specifically talking about where you have a personal selection of things that you make and you pass that on to the next person. Yeah, otherwise we'd be talking about every game since the late 80s, just about. Yeah, so we wanted to trim it down a little bit. And where this all started in the gaming sense is with a little number called Magic the Gathering. I've never heard of it. Yeah, well, it's apparently sold a lot of copies. Who knew? This is, of course, Wizards of the Coast release by Richard Garfield. First came out in 1993. And before we get into the drafting part, I do want to talk about a, a fascinating story that I discovered when we were researching last month's programmed action episode. We didn't talk about it on the show. We talked about Robo Rally. Robo Rally was actually Richard Garfield's first game design that he went to Wizards of the Coast to try and publish. And they were like, well, okay, this looks like a pretty good game, but there's, there's a lot of bits here. There's miniatures and boards and that kind of thing. We need to get something on the ground because we're a very young company. So we need to do something that'll make us a little money so we can publish your game. And Richard Garfield was like, well, okay, I've got this card game thing I'm working on. And that turned out to make them some money. <laughs> I mean, all the money? Yeah, basically. Yeah, basically. It functionally prints money. I mean. It does. Between that and now owning D&D, Wizards of the Coast is like the two 800-pound gorillas of tabletop game. I would argue that the reason that D&D 5e can be the game that it is is because of Magic the Gathering. Right, Magic right. kept the company. Because Everything Magic keeps the company yeah. going. I mean, so they can do challenging things with 5e and they can like only release a source book once every three years, right? And they're like, we'll be fine. We print money over here. It's like Google AdSense. They're like, it's fine. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter what else we do. We sell ads and we make a billion dollars from them every second. So who cares? Yeah. I'd argue in some conventions that Magic cards are a form of currency. I'm sure. <laughs> and as somebody who lived through that period as a gamer, it's impossible to overstate the impact that Magic the Gathering had on the gaming industry. I mean, it totally reshaped retail stores, game design and playtesting, everything else. It was a monumental impact. I started playing in third edition with my friends. Okay. Um, and we, we would do like draft tournaments and stuff like that. It's one of the first games I can remember that like some of my friends who didn't really like board games or role-playing games really got into. So there was a much bigger audience mm -hmm. for it, right? Because of the various Venn diagrams that Magic exists inside of. Yeah. I also started in third edition. And the fact that it even broke into my very, very insular <laughs> social group 
indicates just how much of an impact it had. I wasn't playing board games of any sort really at that time. And somehow magic broke into my sphere and I was playing it with my friends. Sadly, I'm not really a magic player. I started with buying a box and some boosters of alphas. Yeah, I was at the first Gen Con where it launched. And I was like, you know, wow, people literally everywhere are playing this. I mean, you know, everywhere you went, there were just people sitting down in the hallways at Gen Con playing this new game. The game is mathematically beautiful in a lot of ways. All the components work really well together. They're very simplistic. There's, unlike some more modern um, TCGs, there's not a ton of state tracking, right? Like it's in like super intentionally, the only thing you have to keep track of is your health and your opponent's health. And they eventually added counters, right? In the most part, right, you can represent almost everything on the board with cards. And like certainly you can have glass beads, which are counters. That's, that's the way counters work. That's what the video game says. And I just listen to them. And all other tracking is done with cards. And it's, it's really incredibly simplistic. It's not something like Pokemon or a lot of the other games where like, well, you need to have a bunch of like tokens that represent your health of your Pokemons. And then it's kept from round to round. There's no kind of state tracking like that. Yeah, it was just a, a really elegant game. <laughs> After the first couple releases, which were a little bit crazy and chaotic, they were figuring out what worked and what didn't. It is supremely well-tuned and tested now, and they're constantly coming out with three sets a year, I think. I think it's four, isn't it? Maybe four, yeah, I, I don't know. But they come out with a lot of sets. They're always doing interesting new things with the mechanics. It's a really well-put-together game. It's essentially the lifeblood of any brick-and-mortar board game store at this point. Like, yeah, if, if you don't sell Magic <laughs> Gathering, your store is not going to survive. And amazingly enough, it um, started drafting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, for, thank you, Frank. <laughs> Frank, we've done 20 episodes of this show without talking about possibly the most impactful game in the last right, 30 right, right. years. But we got that out of the way. But yeah, so drafting is interesting because the original Magic the Gathering rules were basically assuming that you would get a starter deck and some booster decks maybe and build a deck of cards from that. But drafting, now the format that's used competitive today is what they called booster draft. You'd get a box of booster packs, each of which has like 15 cards, I think. And you'd open them up and divvy them up and basically everybody opens a pack, pick out the card they want, pass to the left. In Magic, it's interesting because... In any given pack, you usually have one rare card, like three or four uncommons and a bunch of commons. And so in theory, whatever rare you open for the first pack is going to kind of determine the direction that you're building. But a lot of the rares are something that need a fairly specific support network Mm -hmm. that you're not guaranteed to get. So it may just be this is a common card, but it's a really good straightforward beater in this duel, so I'll take it. That was not part of the original rules. It's something that started pretty early. And interestingly, it was apparently part of the playtest cycle. There's an interesting article on the the history of magic that I will link in the show notes that actually talks about how it was something that was commonly done during the playtest cycles. And none of the playtesters remember inventing it. They all (laughs) think somebody else taught it to them. So nobody knows who actually came up with this idea, although it was apparently inspired by fantasy football (laughs) drafting, which makes Jason very sad. Yes. Makes sense, though. Yeah, I know the link. I just deal with a lot of people who play a lot of fantasy football. (laughs) I'm so tired of hearing about it. (laughs) And like in the modern day incarnation, obviously they have like officially supported tournaments with it. And they've put out a couple of packages of cards, which are like, hey, if you want to draft, use these cards to like make your drafts interesting. There was a series of cards they had, I think it was two years ago or three years ago, where it's like, hey, you get a deck of cards and like they're randomized. And like each of those cards like affect the draft for that draft round. It'll be like, hey, the first card you pick has its mana cost changed in some way based on when you draft order it. It was like a whole specific set just for drafting. It was really fun. I forget the name of it. We should look it up. Ultimately, that is it's extremely well-supported format now in the game space. And I, I would 
in a lot of ways probably the most popular because it is the one that allows someone like me who doesn't want to spend all the money and doesn't play at the highest tiers to just jump in and play with functionally anyone at any time. A couple years ago, Brian and I and a couple of our friends were like, cool, let's play Magic again, but let's limit our expenditure. So what we'll do is we do a couple of drafts and those are all the cards that we have. And we'll do, we do a draft, we play a set of games with the draft cards, then we do another draft, play a set of game with just the draft cards, then we play a set of game with all the cards we've drafted in total, which had this interesting kind of meta thing that we ended up doing, which was like, cool, now the cards that you drafted in the previous draft are kind of important because they will affect your end deck, but not affect your interim deck. So The other thing that you'll see a lot is people build what they call a cube, which is basically a big pile of unique cards that is basically just a recyclable draft pool. You know, you've got a certain number of rares and commons, and usually it's just one of any given card. And you just draft out of that, and then when you've played all the games you want to play with that, you put them all back in the cube and do it again. Yep. At least in the modern draft stuff now, you draft a certain number of cards, you make a deck that's a certain size, and any cards that you don't select for your deck become your sideboard, right? Where you can actually cycle them into later games to kind of tweak your deck based on what your opponent you might be facing. So that's another aspect that seems to have kind of evolved out of that. Yeah. It's a really good and relatively inexpensive way, like like Joe was saying, to get into Magic without trying to keep up with the meta, uh, which is a very expensive Fool's errand. <laughs> so, um, you know, even though it's not something that was part of the original rules, it was obviously a big inspiration for a lot of the games that followed. So the first real case we have of a board game that includes drafting would be Mertürer. Mertürer, uh, it's German, I can't do it. Mutineer was released in 2000 by Adlungspiel, who basically created an entire line of games or single deck card boxes. Designed by Marcel-André Casilla Merkel, most famous for, I think, Attica, but he's done quite a few games that are all really interesting. And it really... Involves you taking goods from a crew member on a ship, selling goods, doing the resource thing. But each round, you end up choosing a role, and that role represents how good you are at selling or policing how the goods go. And it wasn't a great game, is the big problem. It was a little clunky, the roles weren't extremely distinguished, and I can hardly think of anyone who's really played it, or and no one, I've never seen it played in the past two decades. It seems like this was more of an inspiration because I think this was also one of the very first games that had that kind of role selection mechanic. Correct. You know, you can definitely see a lot of influence from it in even games like Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, pulled a lot of that. And particularly the next game on our list. Right, so Citadels, which was released in 2000, published by Multisim and designed by Bruno Feduti. Actually, Hans and Gluck did the first edition. In Citadels, there's a single set of cards. And at the start of each round, whoever was the king last round takes all the cards, shuffles them together, burns one, puts one to the side, and then selects a roll. And so they know all the cards that will be in play, and they can pick a roll they think will will serve them well for that round. And then the cards pass around, and as the cards pass around, right, you take a card on your turn for the roll that you want. And then if I remember correctly, you then resolve in number order? Yeah, basically you start, okay, is anybody the assassin? assassin? Is anybody the thief? And then just kind of go up through there. The actual points scoring in the game is mostly like building districts of your city. And yeah, the object is to have so many buildings. Right. Eight buildings, yeah. And you'll get a certain number of points for each building, depending on how expensive it is and how hard it is to build. But the role selection is, because some of them will just be, hey, I'm good at building stuff. I can do a little beachiever. Some of them are, I get some more money. Some of them are, I'm protected from people that try and mess with me. And then you have things like the assassin and the thief, who are just like, I'm going to wreck your day. <laughs> 
the thing that makes it interesting is like the assassin basically picks another character and says, okay, you don't get to do Picks another answer. role, which right. may or may not be in the game or have been selected by anyone. Right, exactly. So it's like, well, I'm going to assassinate the merchant. And if the merchant's not in the game, then nothing happens. But if you know, all right, well, he's in really good shape. He's got a lot of buildings, but he doesn't have much gold. So he's probably going to pick the merchant. I'm going to do that and hope I take him out because he's winning. Yeah, the game gets really interesting towards the end of it as the assassin is desperately trying to guess what the lead player is going to do. It's like, oh, okay, they saw these cards, and so therefore they probably picked one of these two cards. They probably swerved me so they wouldn't have picked this one and said they picked this one. Yeah, there's there's a very much I clearly cannot drink the wine in front of me (laughs) motif going on there. The other thing that's interesting is, is depending on the player count, sometimes that card that was burned at the beginning goes back into the hand for the last person to choose from. Mm -hmm. So even the person who saw the last card that he passed doesn't know for sure that that's the role the last person took. You're guaranteed never to know exactly what There's always two cards. There's there's never certainty, yeah. yeah. It's a simple game, but it's elegant and it's still fun. I mean, it's showing its age a little bit now, but I would still sit down and play it. And yeah. Bruno acknowledges that Murder was the inspiration for the role selection, but he wanted to build a different game. And he actually had kind of citadels, but didn't know what to do with it because nothing really lit it on fire until he added the role selection bit to the front. Yeah. And even though that's, you know, mechanically and point wise, it's a relatively small part of the game. That's what it's everybody key. remembers about it. Oh, totally. It's the fun part of the game. I mean, like, it's the action part of the game. Everything else is just resolution, right? It's like, it's not dissimilar from, like, Space Alert, which is like, <laughs> all the planning is where the fun part is. Then resolution is just figuring <laughs> yeah, out what yeah. happened. It's the end storytelling after everyone has done the things. So that's where all the action is in the game. The story uh, I need to tell you is Bruno is uh, kind of, I've been corresponding with him and translating various games from French for a while. I did translations for Eurogames, cafe games. But anyway, Bruno basically sent this game and I was helping him translate into uh, English because he could show his French to German game companies if they were in English, but none of them spoke French. Something about wars or (laughs) some kind of difficulty. Europe, man. But there's this one game called Citadels and he absolutely had no one who was interested in it been turned down so much even by Hans and Gluck that picked it up so he sent it to me I translated it printed out a really ratty set of cards instead of the crown I grabbed a first player marker that was Bob the Goldfish from the Earthworm Jim collection <laughs> and took it to the gathering the big private game convention and that copy was worn to death completely by people playing it and you know immediately after it Hans and Gluck kind of pinged him going you know we want this. <laughs> nice. After just how much. Word of mouth. Word of mouth. So my copy of Citadel's, the Hans and Gluck version, does read to Frank without whom this game would not have been possible. <laughs> nice. And pretty, yeah, Bruno sent me an author's copy. Very cool. These are like one card drafting where you're choosing one card and kind of one round. Unlike Magic, we're still not up to the level of picking an entire booster set and letting it go around the table. Until we get to 2004's Fairy Tale, uh, published by Yehudo Inc. for the Japanese version and uh, designed by Satoshi Nakamura. This is a really simple game. You get five cards, you draft them, you keep passing card around the table. Everyone takes one and adds it to their face down pile. And then you turn up the cards you drafted over the previous five rounds of drafting and you turn them up. Played face up or face down. 
they have different effects. And basically that produces a score. If you play them face up, they'll have a slightly different thing. You turn them all face up at the end. And points with some set collections. Uh, but that's it. It's kind of compelling. You all play it once. It'll do up to five players. And uh, the great game's fast. I mean, it's like a 20, 30 minute game. You play four or five hands. I had never really heard of this one. Did it make much of a, an impact in I the U.S.? In a subtle way, um, mostly because, ooh, wow, this whole drafting thing's kind of cool. Uh-huh. And it had its fans enough that Z-Man picked it up based on word of mouth of how many people were, had played the Japanese version. So traveling back to reality, as opposed to strange Japanese fairy tales, we have a Brief History of the World, which was released in 2009, was published by Ragnar Games and Spiral Galaxy Games, designed by Gary Dickens, Steve Kendall, and Phil Kendall. Back when I first started getting into board games with Brian, Brian, John, and Mike, and I played a lot of Brief History of the World. Like it, For a while, it was the game that we played. In essence, each round is two opposite drafts, right? So whoever's in the front will draft from the powers for that age, and whoever's in last will draft from the civilizations from that age. The drafts go in opposite directions, and then the civilizations go in a specific order each round, right? So there's a handful of civilizations, right? So like, hey, it might be the Sumerians are first. The core mechanic is you get a certain number of armies, you place an initial place down on the board, and then you kind of expand onto the board, maybe fighting, maybe not, depending on how crowded the board is. And then once you're done, you lay all these pieces down, and you can never use them again. Now they're just locked in place. People can take them over. You will score points for them if they stay there in the future, but... You can't interact with them if you end up being in a civilization that's next to them in the next round. You have to attack them, right? Because they're not your people anymore. They're a previous people who happen to be your color. It's an extremely elegant game. It's got a lot of pieces of risk without all the pain that risk has, right? It's very contained risk in a lot of ways. You're still rolling dice for combat on both sides, but unlike risk, I actually enjoy this game. The thing that makes it neat from a drafting perspective is that I think this is the first time we see drafting used as a balancing mechanism. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. like Joe said, the person who was in last place gets first pick of the available civilizations. So in a certain period, if you're in last place, if you get the Roman Empire, you are going to kick some serious butt because they have just a lot more armies than the other civilizations in that period. Whereas if you're winning, the last one that gets around to you is going to be something like, oh, I'm playing 18th century Japan. I get two armies. Have a nice day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, balance is, they're completely not balanced for the various Although empires. I will say that, and this requires us to take a moment to talk about nomenclature. <laughs> In 1991, the Wright Brothers released History of the World, which is the predecessor to this game. The actual gameplay with Conquest works pretty much the same way. It didn't actually use drafting. It used kind of an interesting mechanism where basically the person who was in last place would draw a civilization card and they can say, oh, this is pretty good. I'll keep it for myself or give it to someone else. Who doesn't already have a card. Right, exactly. And so basically you have a certain degree of control over who everyone is. Now, in any age, there's like eight civilizations and maybe only six players. So there's always going to be at least one that you just don't get to. So you can't guarantee that a certain really good civilization you're waiting for is there. Anyway, they did History of the World. A pretty straightforward counter one. Avalon Hill released a big coffin box version with unique miniatures for every age. 
And then Brief History of the World came out in 2009. And then just a couple years ago, they released a History of the World, which is functionally Brief History of the World with a couple polishing changes. And I think slightly shorter. So as it's one, one inch shorter. Shorter. It's, it's now one briefer shorter. than Brief History yeah, it's of the one World. Inch, one inch shorter. So talking about what game we're talking about here is a little confusing. Anyway, I had a point. <laughs> um, board games are confusing. <laughs> yes. People should come up with new names for things. Even though, like, on the face of it, every single civilization is not balanced, like, at all. It is one of the few games, I think the reason it got to the table for us so often as it did, is every game was close, right? Every game was a couple of points because of the way the balancing mechanisms worked. And, like, there were a couple of games, I will grant you, where, hey, the Romans weren't in, so the person who was really behind didn't get that kind of big catch-up. They probably got Alexander the Great instead, and they still did pretty okay. It's fascinating because, like, as the last person, there's a couple things you have to consider. You have to consider, hey, how many armies am I going to get? And also, when am I going to go in the round, and what's my table state look like? Yeah. There have been a couple of games where, like, the person who is the runaway victor is... The person who did really well in the last round, but didn't do so well that they succeeded anyone, but they kind of caught up, right? So they scored like 30 points in the last round, but they're still kind of in last place. And then they get their last hand of cards the last round. They get the Russians. They functionally double score everything they just scored and then also get points for all the stuff they do with the Russians. And then they have a, a pretty wide margin of victory. Yeah, going going last in one round and first in the next is a, is a huge value yeah. here. But also positioning on the board matters. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a decent presence in one area, and you get like a civilization that's on the border of that, not only do you take it from another player, so it doesn't tear into your existing empire, but you spread it apart. You can help build a big barrier around it. Yeah, the points are fundamentally how many territories you control, and also there are some significant bonuses for control of a continent. There's like one bonus if you have the most, most pieces, armies, yeah. two if you have control of most of the territories, and three if you're the only one who has pieces in that continent. Right. Triple uh, and those score. bonuses shift and change over the course of the game. It's just elegant. I mean, it's rarely a game that I think of when I'm putting together a list of my favorite games, but I will almost always say yes if someone asks if I want to play it. Yeah. Uh, it plays better with six, the most number of players. The right? board then you, full. Five or six, yeah. Because as the board gets more full, it gets more entertaining. Honestly, the balancing works out better when the board is more full. Yeah. Because runaway victories are harder to happen because you, you'll have to roll dice and dice are random. Yeah, if everybody's in Europe and Africa and the Middle East and one player happens to get China, they can just spread out there unopposed. Yeah. Yep. And then we get to the big dog on the block. Yeah, let's continue looking at history with Seven Wonders, released in 2010, published by Repost Production, designed by Antoine Bauza. And this kind of continuing that theme of going through civilization, in this game, it's kind of the quintessential drafting game. Whenever someone mentions a drafting game, this is exactly what I think of. You're basically playing through three ages of human history. Each age, players are going to draw seven cards from a deck. They're going to pick one and pass. Once everyone has selected a card, they all play them simultaneously and you resolve whatever that card does. Some cards give you resources, some cards are buildings, some cards are technologies. There's a degree of set collection to it, like you want to get one of each of the different types of technologies. But really where the game shines is hate drafting. <laughs> it's really just looking into your left, looking to your right, it's like, okay... Well, Brian's kind of weak on military, and Frank's kind of strong on military, so I'm going to grab this military card so that I don't have to worry about Frank stomping me, and I want to stomp Brian. But and Brian, Joe has all the science, yes. and somebody has to keep this card away from him There's before he goes. There's always some jerk monopolizing all the science, and you're like, Because ah. it turns out you can get a lot of points yeah. that way. 
draft alternates left and right. Yep, so between like, the ages. You don't have to worry about it always going to the same person. The game's very, very simple. I mean, it plays fairly quickly, even in high player counts. Yeah, that's the nice thing is with drafting games in general, since everybody's doing their thing simultaneously, you're not waiting for someone else yeah. to take their turn. And this does, what, seven or eight players? <laughs> One of the expansions makes it eight. It's normally seven. And amusingly, they just came out with the dual version where there's just two players. Which is also a very good game. Just It's, it? it's quite different. Yeah. yeah. This one's a lot of fun. You're drafting things to get points, and you're also... There's a little bit of engine building going on because you have to sort of establish that you can get all the resources you need to build things. You're only interacting directly with the people on your left and right, so you can build their resources. You only fight with them. Most of the expansions are good. Leaders gives you an additional sort of pre-draft where you get people who will give you a bonus for different age. Cities is just functionally more cards and more wonders. Each wonder is sort of your player board, and it gives you different special abilities you can do when you build. And it's a little weird that it took five years between Fairy Tale and this, because it is inspired by Fairy Tale and the drafting in that. But it's a much better game. I mean, because of the way rounds basically add onto each other mm-hmm. and you gradually build up, it feels more like a full game, except for the large player count. Of course, when I'm thinking about it, the Z-Man edition of Fairy Tale didn't come out in 2008. So a really yeah. fairy tale laid kind of, you know, unknown. And then Seven Wonders just wiped it off the map. Yeah, yeah. Seven Wonders has been a, a huge success and it's a good game. It's one that still to this day sees a lot of play during Dragon Con because it's one that everybody knows and you can get a bunch of people around a table and play. Yeah, it's a rarity to find a game that plays that many players that you can teach very easily, you play very simply, and it resolves quickly. Other than taking up a lot of board space with Mm -hmm. cards stacked on cards, it's not a big difficult setup or teardown. The other thing that Seven Wonders did that I'm a little surprised we haven't seen more people sort of borrowing, in one of the expansions, it was actually a promo card for leaders. There was one called Esteban, and that was basically right after Antoine Bowser had a baby. And so it's basically a picture of his baby, you know, is the leader card. But its ability is when you trigger that for this one round, you don't pass cards. Because in every drafting game, you've always had that round where it's like, wow, this is a really good hand. I wish I could keep a couple of these. (laughs) Well, now you can. And everybody else goes, oh. (laughs) It doesn't always even come into play, but it's, it's cute when it happens because it's always like, Oh, God, is it worth spending this now? Because I really like all these cards. Is he called Esteban the Antichrist? Like, no, no, it's Whoa. just a cute little baby. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, but it screws up everybody else's turn. <laughs> yeah, but it's good for me. <laughs> it might be good for everyone else. Yeah, who knows? Sure. Maybe I have two sure. signs in my hand. Who knows? <laughs> uh, you're the worst. <laughs> I say, down with reality. Enough of reality. Let's go back to fantasy. Let's take a look at Seasons, where it was released in 2012 by Libelude, designed by Regis Bonasse. And it's Magic the Gathering, the board game, functionally. (laughs) You're all sorcerers in a tournament duel, and then you get a set starting deck, and then you draft cards, and then you play Magic with each other. I mean, like, it's not exactly that, but it's got resources. You cast spells with those resources. It feels extremely (laughs) Magic-y, in all honesty. Yeah. In Seasons, you start and you draft a full set of nine cards. And then you basically divide those into the three main rounds of the game. Mm. And you get one of those sets for each. But you're drafting your entire deck almost. Your and then you can fight any yeah. card from that deck for the entire game. Except you're then forced to figure out, okay, I'm going to need this as an early kind of build up my resources. This is a something. And this is the big scoring part where I actually score points. And making sure as you're drafting that your entire strategy for the game comes out of that draft. So it really feels like the first board game example that goes back to that booster draft thing mm-hmm. where that's going to define your entire game because the game is those powers 
And the rest of it's all dice. And, yeah. yeah. So like Magic the Gathering, obviously the objective is to score points as opposed to kill your opponent wizards. But it has a very similar feel, which is like you play cards that give you resources. You play cards that give you points. You play cards that give you entities on the board that can fight each other. And like in Magic, you're assembling your whole plan yep. at the beginning. And yeah, ooh, combo, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's weird that Millennium Blades, which is the Magic the Gathering board game, there's no drafting in it. Well, to be fair, it's not... Right. Blades is it's a game about CCGs. It's a game about CCGs. Yeah. That's not the theme, game, not the mechanics. Yeah, yeah, totally. Million Blades is weird. It is. <laughs> Very unusual It's the game. most meta game I've ever played. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. So meta. Yesterday, I was actually selling games at the Atlanta Game Fest flea market. And a bunch of people came by my table going, I've never heard of any of these games. <laughs> Have what? they met you? <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a few strangers there, people that don't know me and everything walk by. The next game is only available in Japan. <laughs> was only produced in the Japanese language. To play it, you would have to acquire a copy from somebody in Japan and uh, pasted it up in English unless you spoke Japanese. That is Age of Assassins, released in 2013, published by... Ayatsi, oh dear lord, I'm going to pull a Joe. Ayatsi Surare Ningyukan and Muniyuki Yokuchi is the designer. Moshiwaki arimasen. We're very sorry. This is a four-player hate drafting game, really. It plays kind of like fairy tale. You, you basically start with a hand of cards and they go around the table. You put some of the cards face up, four of the cards face up in the row, three of the cards face down in the back row behind them. And then you score points at the end of the round. Each round is its own separate entity. Where this changes from fairy tale, I mean, takes the same basic structure, is that the cards are mean. Literally, you know, if you collect five assassins, then basically you win the round, everyone dies. <laughs> Seems strong. <laughs> and you're a bunch right. of assassins. Sure. <laughs> if you collect, uh, I think, three wizards, the person to your left doesn't score, and that overrides the assassins. <laughs> Oh, yeah. that's great. If you have, you know, <laughs> if you have like four of these guys in your front row, everyone else scores minus two points for another type of thing they've got. The cards are extremely interactive and it's extremely critical to watch what everyone's starting to draft in their face up stuff. Right. Of course, they're going to conceal the important stuff face down. And to see what you got past you, because if you see, you know, a couple of assassins and you've not been seeing any assassins from this guy, you're... Oh. <laughs> It's really short. I mean, there's, you know, 28 cards in the deck. You know that distribution cold. Oh, yeah. And there's one where if you get one, he's worth a ton of points. If you ever get a second one, it's no points for your hand. <laughs> <laughs> Save that one. Just hand it last. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a mean game. I say, so you don't have friends at the end of this game. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hearing. It's a bloodbath. <laughs> that sounds like fun. I oh, love that you translated this so you could play it. <laughs> I didn't translate it. I think uh, one of the other folks that does a lot of Japanese games translated it and did paste ups. So all I'd do is print them, cut them out, and label the cards and screw them up. It's a yeah, wonderful Jason, you, game. You may not know. Uh, Frank for a long time ran a, a site called the Island of Misfit Games, which was just a place where you could get rules, translations, and notes and random stuff for all these obscure games that only people like Frank know about. <laughs> yeah, and basically the system I wrote for structuring the it was called the Gaming Dumpster. The system I wrote for it i wrote in an afternoon some horrible scripting language it didn't have authentication you couldn't log in you could upload anything and as people found out about it they would just upload crap and i had to go and clean it up and i was bitching about that one day and basically dirk and aldi said hey you want to move your stuff into our thing we've got a setup where we've got authentication some protection everything so i basically shut down the gaming dumpster and moved all my users and everything to board game geek which gave them a start (laughs) 
Now, do you have a copy of Board Game Geek signed to you from uh, Dirk no, and Aldi? No, no, no. But, <laughs> but if you look at my user, for a while I had admin rights on Board Game Geek. <laughs> the power. Oh, totally. I may still. I'm not sure. Why isn't our podcast at the top of the page every day, <laughs> oh, Frank? Such a fail. <laughs> How are they in the hotness? It's not even a game. <laughs> Shut up. They're that good. And yeah, I've got a user number in the hundreds or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's keep the Japanese theme going here. Sushi Go, released in 2013 by Adventureland Games, designed by Phil Walker Harding. It's essentially the game of drafting cute sushi. That's really all you're doing. It's basically about as simple a drafting game as you can possibly get, honestly. Essentially, everyone's handed out cards. They grab a card, put it face down, pass the rest. Uh, You alternate left and right, just like about every other drafting game. Once everyone's got their card, they reveal simultaneously, and it's essentially just a set collection game. I want to collect three different sushi rolls. I want to collect one of these nigiri. I want to get whatever. It's quick. It's easy to teach. It's a good way to get people who aren't That's true. gamers as such into it. Is the scoring really consistent across the sushi types? or No, they're different. Some of them are like, if you collect one of this, it's worth one. If you collect two, it's worth three. If you collect yeah. three, it's worth six. You'll have modifiers. Like if you put down wasabi, the next thing you play is worth twice as much. And there's uh, chopsticks you can put down that allow you to put down two things at the same time instead of one. Stuff like that. Sounds really similar to fairy tale. Okay. Yeah, the drafting mechanics of it are very much the same. But I guess what's nice about it is it is a very easy to teach game. It is very easy to ease people into. And the art is so friendly and cute that people are like, oh, I want to give that a shot, even if they're not really gamers themselves. They've expanded it with Sushi Go Party, which is, I think it supports something crazy like eight players or something like that. It's the same game. It's just got a, more components. They've come up with Sushi Roll recently, which is basically the dice a, version. The dice version of the same game. That's clever. Uh, you know, somebody just came up with a name. Is like, all right, now we have to come up with a dice mechanic. <laughs> exactly. Milk it. I'm waiting for Sushi Duel. That'll be next. <laughs> Probably. I mean, it's a, it's a totally cute game. It's cromulent, right? Like it's <laughs> it's not something I would be jumping up and down to play, but it's it fun. is great. It is great for introducing new players. It mm-hmm. is for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. So in 2015, Stonemaier Games came out with their entry into this genre, and it is clearly heavily inspired by Seven Wonders, let's say. It's called Between Two Cities, 2015 by Stonemaier Games, designed by Matthew O'Malley, Morton Monrad Peterson, and Ben Rossett. And this is, on the surface, very similar to Seven Wonders. It's a simultaneous drafting game where you're only directly interacting with the people on either side of you and you're sort of building a tableau over the course of the game. But what you're building is not your tableau of things in front of you. You are building a city with the player to your left and with the player to your right. And for each one, you know, there's five or six different types of buildings, and you get benefits for having restaurants next to housing, and you get bonuses for houses being together, and you get benefits for having a certain number of parks. And factories are worth a lot of points, but they make houses near them worth less. There's a whole Mm -hmm. combination of point-scoring things. What makes it interesting is the fact that you're doing this with both of your neighbors, and your final score is whichever one of those is worse. So you want both of them to be good, and then you hope that the ones they're building with the people on the other side of them are not as good as the ones they built with you. (laughs) Basically, you're just trying to build the best cities you can. You don't usually have the time or the brain with to follow what everybody else is doing. It's hard to hate draft in it. It's another quick playing game, doesn't take a lot of explanation time, doesn't take a lot of setup. They actually did another weird hybrid recently between two castles of Mad King Ludwig, which which sounds like a Mad Lib game that somebody came up with. That sounds amazing, Um, actually. I haven't played it. I haven't even seen it. It's just fascinating as a merger of two games that don't seem to have anything in common. Really? It does sound like a The name is amazing. Yes. Also in 2015, in a completely different way of approaching things, instead of cooperatively building cities, Blood Rage. 
probably one of the most ridiculously named board games I've ever encountered outside of hate from the same company. Seamon <laughs> Games. Or they may Kamana. have some issues here. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they just listen to heavy metal all the time in the office and just make giant minis. Designed by Eric Lang. If you're familiar with Simon, he apparently makes everything they do. Blood Rage is the story of Ragnarok. Viking clans fight with each other to earn the most glory before going to Valhalla. The drafting part comes in from there's three ages in the game. Each age, you'll begin by drafting cards. The cards themselves will be either upgrades to your clan, to your leader, to your warriors, to your boats, or maybe they'll even be monsters that you're collecting for your clan to fight on your behalf. It's a simple draft. You get a certain number of cards, you grab one, pass them, and you go until you run out of cards. The interesting thing is the cards themselves are tied to certain gods. So, for example, cards for Thor are mostly built around battle. Cards for Loki, hilariously, are built mostly around losing fights. <laughs> it's all um, part of the plan. Yeah. Probably to Thor, yeah. yeah. Yes. In fact, the Loki strategy tends to be very, very powerful because you can definitely throw fights very easily in this game. <laughs> But yeah, it's kind of a dudes in the map game. You have your leader, you've got your warriors, you'll summon your monsters onto the board. The board's broken up into regions. You'll be able to pillage these regions to get buffs to your clan or to get victory points. Each of the clans have their own trackers for their rage, which is essentially how many actions they can take on a turn. They've got horns, which is the amount of Vikings they can have on the board. They have a number of things. But Basically, the game is all about trying to get your guys into the right places to accomplish missions, trying to kill your other opponents for victory points, and then trying to jam as many of your Vikings into the spot that's going to get obliterated by Ragnarok on this turn so you can earn glory for going to Valhalla. It is a completely ridiculous and absurd game. I love it to pieces. And if you ever want to get all the Kickstarter exclusives, it's really expensive and stupid like that. Oh yeah, You must be so proud. It took me a while, but I got them all. I had to literally ship one from, I think it was from Russia, actually. My mystic troll came from Russia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've heard a lot about Russian trolls, so apparently uh, yeah, they're good Yeah, you know what? That's yeah. thematically appropriate. Mm-hmm. I should have had him sign it. <laughs> from Dimitri with love. The game's great. Every time I teach it to people, I tell them, hey, the first round doesn't matter. Don't get bent out of shape because you'll have someone who'll just run away with it. They're like, oh, Jason got 10 points and I only got two. Doesn't matter. That is nothing in this game. The, the points really escalate oh as, my gosh. as it goes on. Like most Simon games, when you start adding all the exclusives and the expansions... It can get real broken real fast. Mm -hmm. I've had people lap people on this score trap before. (laughs) There's even one expansion where you could bring two of the gods onto the board itself. So I had a friend who completed like four missions. He had Odin in that location, which doubles all the quest values. And something else doubled his score. It was just like, he got like 100 points in the last round. Anything where you say doubles is a recipe for trouble. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this is very similar to Rising Sun, I think. (laughs) Yeah, think of Rising Sun as essentially the Asian reskin of Blood Rage. It's not really a reskin. There's some extra stuff going on They've got mandates and alliances, and I love that game, too. But they are very mechanically similar. And supposedly, they're coming out with an Egyptian-themed one called Ankh later this year. I got a copy of Rising Sun and a couple of the expansions in the trade recently. I'm really fascinated by it. I'm very into that sort of Asian aesthetic, and I really want to do it. But it's just such a big table hog, and there's so many boxes of things. Oh, yeah. Every time I pull it out, and I'm like, man, this is going to take a while to get through. And I just kind of put it away again. And a lot to explain, and yeah. I just want to sit down and futz with it myself so I know how the game works. Yeah. But it does look cool. It is nice that with both of those games, and I suspect with Ankh, whenever they finally come out with it, they are limited by a certain number of rounds. So it's not like one of those games where like, well, you play until someone's been annihilated or when some point value has been hit. It's like you have four rounds or three rounds or whatever it might be. That's the whole game. Go for it. 
One of the big things about Seven Wonders that appealed is the whole getting seven or eight people around a table playing one game that doesn't grow exponentially longer because it has eight players. But games that took advantage of that really, well, haven't been appearing, which is why Steampunk Rally is generally a game I grab for big tables of people. This is 2015 from Roxley Games, designed by Oren Bishop. And essentially, you've got a racetrack, which is a scoreboard, with some themed spaces that require you to do extra resources or such to land on those spaces. And you have a big, giant car that you're bolting on and building while you're racing. At the courts of drafting game, you're getting a number of cards of different flavors and types. And you can spin those cards to just bolt them on your car. Or spend them for dice, which are your power sources fuel for actually doing things. Ultimately, you use the machines that you're bolting onto your car, and you do have to worry about how you're placing, whether there's connectivity to the rest of your car, for your engine, for how to convert the dice you've gained into movement. This can be converting dice, losing pips on dice, to buy other dice to finally roll and then spin certain values of those dice to actually get spaces. And so in between the, you know, drafting, you're looking at, okay, if I grab these two, I can reroll this and everything. So it feels like a very kind of resource engineer mm-hmm. planning puzzle game almost. And there's a lot going on with it. Meanwhile, you're having to balance the fact that you have uh, damage on your car. You don't want it to take too much damage, but, you know, rolling over the hills, yeah, it's going to take damage. If you happen to be flying across it because you've got wings and propellers on your cars, then you don't take the damage. But you probably spent a ton of fuel to keep those propellers going of a specific type because there are three colors of dice. And which ones you have may depend on which power plants you've been collecting. Yeah, actually, a surprisingly complex game. It's still fairly easy to teach once you explain how the because dice all, all are Because all the rules are going to be on the individual Yeah, and they're bits. pretty obvious and pretty icons and easy to tell. But the entire hand is drafted. You get four cards each round, look at it, hate them all, and <laughs> would have to choose one and pass it. And then, of course, you get the last one passed to you that's useless completely. <laughs> Yeah, I was looking at the pictures on, on Board Game Geek and like the contraptions you build are huge. <laughs> you may have like seven or eight cards <laughs> yeah. piled onto the, your car. Various colored dice all over the place. Mm-hmm. So I was like, what is going on with this game? Oh, yeah, but it's addictive. I mean, it gets its hooks into you. Then in 2016, we have another one of those games that doesn't do drafting as part of the core rules, but you should always play the game with drafting because it strictly makes it better, which is Terraforming Mars, a 2016 release by Jacob Frixelius, I think, I'm sorry, from Frix Games and then Stronghold Games. This is one that you've probably heard of or seen or played if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast. It's been pretty popular. Never heard of it. (laughs) Sure. Basically, you're one of a series of companies who is over generations trying to turn Mars into a habitable planet. You're raising the temperature, you're producing oxygen, you're getting liquid water on Mars. In the core rules, at the start of each turn, you draw a certain number of cards and you look at them and you say, all right, well, I'm going to buy these, I'm not going to buy these. Because each one costs you a certain amount of resources, not just to build, but just to have the card in your hand. So you have to decide if it's worth it or not. And there's definitely a lot of engine building going on. You're definitely going in different directions depending on what company you have, what you've already built, you know, where your strengths are on the board. One of the variants which we always play with these days is card drafting. So you get a set of cards at the start of each turn, you pick one, and then you pass to your left or your right, just like in classic Magic or Seven Wonders or any of the others. And that really lets you shape what you're doing to fit the strategy that you've built so far. 
and or do Jason's favorite hate drafting. It's like, <laughs> wow, Frank has all of the plants mm-hmm. and animals. I can't give him any more of these, so I'm just going to draft this card and not buy it just to keep him from having it. Or my personal favorite, that same scenario where Frank has a lot of animals, I have the ants card in my hand and I pass it to someone I know is going to play it and troll Frank the rest of the game. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. It's a great game. The drafting, I think, adds a great deal. It does add a little bit to the playtime, especially if you have somebody who's prone to overanalysis, which we occasionally do in our gaming group, not naming any names, friends of the show. Having that control rather than just a random hand of cards makes it a lot more strategic. I'd argue it's a completely different game if you're not playing with drafting, because drafting, at least you can try and shape and build a strategy. If you're not drafting, it's just like, well, here's what fate gave me. I don't like any of these. Yeah, I think the non-drafting game is probably good for the first time somebody's playing Terraforming Mars, because you're not really going to know what you're trying to draft for. But once you've got that, I I strongly recommend using the draft area. Yeah, that's true. That's fair, because just like with the basic corporation, where it's like, you have no special powers. Here's some money. I don't know how much more we have to say about Terraforming Mars. It's a real good game. You should play it. Yep. I tend to prefer my games with drafting in the middle of the game, where the game is definitely structured around the drafting. I think my favorite of this entire lot would be NS 2016 by Madigo. Christian Martinez is the designer. This is such a good game. It's a little hard to explain because whenever I explain the game to someone, I spend at least two-thirds of the explanation explaining the victory conditions (laughs) because they are bonkers and complicated and central to the game. Basically, you have a big dudes on a map with tiles you're laying out as you go and exploring and expanding. The tiles have powers on them. And you have a bunch of guys, and then you have some cities and sanctuaries that get placed on the map. You want guys in a number of spaces, or you want to have a number of sanctuaries that you control on the map, or you want to basically have majority ownership where you have the most guys in a certain number of spaces. And that's it. Except for there's a little more complexity on that. But in order to do anything in this game, you have action cards. And there's an extremely limited number of action cards. Literally four per player plus one. And it's set depending on which group of players you have. And this might be add a couple of guys to the board. Move one of your guys into a space. Combat in the game is handled by whoever goes first and moved in attack. Basically removes one of the defender's pieces. Then the defender removes one of the attacker's pieces until one of them gives up or they come to an agreement and go, okay, okay, okay we're done. Yeah, that's good. We're, we're fine. <laughs> we're cool now. <laughs> so yeah, you can attack and just wipe someone out. You know exactly what you're going to lose if you fight to the death. There's not a lot of luck in the game at all, except for the draft. And because you know every card in that deck, because it's such a tiny pool, you know who got the explore card, who would potentially, you know, gain from having the extra guy on a space. You know who's taking which attack card. So you can kind of see what's coming to punch you in the face. You can kind of see what's coming. (laughs) And then you play them in order once you have your hand. It's such a brutal knife edge game. I mean, it starts out and you're kind of expanding a little bit. But by the third round, you're having to think about every card, who has it, when they're playing it, or you have to play this before, but you have to still play a card. And the decisions are agonizing. It's definitely the most hardcore drafting game I can think of. It's also an absolutely beautiful game. Oh, it's gorgeous. It has all this Celtic art and themed around Irish clans. And actually has some really nice figures and everything. Mm -hmm. Oh, the tiles are cool, too. Because they're not just like hexagonal or like squares. Like they're, they're weird, like... I don't even know how to describe it. Like these ornate shapes that like swirl and bend into each other. That look like they shouldn't connect, but they do. It's crazy. It's something you have to play with people that are not afraid of vicious games because it is. (laughs) I ain't scared. It is a knife fight in a closet kind of game. (laughs) But yeah, it's really short and focused and hardcore. 
but fairly simple, except for the victory conditions, which are the game, really. So this sounds great and everything, but like, what if we were all just bunnies instead? <laughs> you ever just think, what if we were all bunnies, what, man? Have you ever just thought about it? I mean, like, really? No, no, I can, I can say with great certainty that I have not thought about that. Well, Bunny Kingdom is here to help you solve that mystery, Brian. <laughs> it's released in 2017 by ILO Games and designed by Richard Garfield. Hmm. He's done a couple things that have been pretty done good. Done a couple things. So Bunny Kingdom is, in essence, a area control game, kind of. With no conflict whatsoever. With no conflict whatsoever. <laughs> because bunnies. Because bunnies. On your turn, you have a handful of cards. And you pick one of them. There are a couple different kinds of cards. There are artifacts, which score you points at the end of the game. There are modifiers, which make the other kind of card that you draw worth a different kind of terrain, in essence. And then finally, there are terrain pieces. Uh, so each of the cards are in a coordinate system, A through J and 1 through 10. And so, hey, you might have A1 and C3 and D7. Bingo. <laughs> and you pick one of those cards. And you score connected pieces of terrain. And what you score is the number of bunnies times the number of different unique resources in that connected area. So, for example, if you have a single bunny, and that bunny is also by a carrot, you have one point, one times one. So there are a number of ways to add different resources to locations. Those tend to go pretty early in the game once you've played a couple times because they're extremely valuable. There are... Oh, it's actually it's actually the number of parapets times the number of... Yes, you're right, not bunnies. It's the, the number it's of the, parapets. Because yeah, there's like three levels right, of Right, because there's castle. three levels of buildings. That's right. So there's three levels of buildings. So you have to have a bunny in there, but once you have a bunny in there, you time the number of parapets mm -hmm. times the number of unique resources. There are a bunch of different kinds of terrain that has default resources yes. on them. Yeah. Mountains will have iron and woods will have wood and rivers and lakes will have fish. And so obviously what you want to form is as big of a kingdom as possible with as many unique resources as possible. But also you want to create them as early as possible because the game happens over several rounds and you will score all of your kingdoms every round. You do a round of drafting, you do a round of scoring, and then you go back and forth until the game is completed. Isn't there also a, isn't there like a squatter thing where you like can take over territory that you want to, but you don't have permanent ownership of yeah, it? Yeah, so one of the cards is like a camp. Camp, yeah. Is yeah, a you're camp. Right, camp. You're like, hey, uh, I, you put a bunny in that space, I claim this space, but later if someone actually claims that space, you lose it, but you can camp out until someone takes it. You don't go through all the tiles. Hmm. So there will be some that will be unused at the end of the game. So maybe your your squatter will be there the entire time and the linchpin to your victory. And you're still scoring anyway, right? So they count towards your scoring for every round until you get kicked off the property. They potentially connect locations, but they don't give you any resources. Yeah. So it's an interesting twist on like a dudes on a map game because like there is no conflict, right? It's it's literally like okay, of these options, what would make most sense for me scoring the most? It's constantly that choice every round because you're just like. Ugh. And sometimes it's like, well, I have no good choices, but maybe this will come into something later on, right? It's a cute little game. It's surprising. They just came out with an expansion, but I'm not certain what it actually adds. More bunnies? One would hope. It adds foxes. Oh, no. <laughs> it gets real, gets real dark. Oh, dear. <laughs> the Watership Down expansion? Oh, no. Whoa. <laughs> wow. Uh, sky thieves that you can use to link locations. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, Watership Down, she's right. <laughs> I've now brought back uh, your first childhood drama, yeah, have I? Yeah, thanks. Excellent. <laughs> Happy to help, man. A um, recent one that is uh, that has come to our attention, we haven't actually gotten to play it yet, but it seems like a new candidate for that sort of Seven Wonders, quick-playing group of players drafting game is Paper Tales. 
came out in 2017 by Masato Uesugi, published by Catch-Up Games. It's originally a Japanese production called Vorpal or Vorpals, so it looks like it's been a bit rethemed. Paper Tales is kind of a minimalist drafting game. Basically, each turn you have a handful of cards, which are basically units of some kind that you are taking in your hand and then playing out. The main objective is each turn you're going to be fighting against the person on your left and person on your right, and whoever has the most military power gets some points. As in Seven Wonders, your cards are producing various resources or consuming various resources or getting bonuses based on resources that you have. The basic rules are very simple. You have four units at a time, two in the front, which you're fighting, and two in the back, which are not. You can construct buildings with some of your resources, which will boost up some of your point value. But functionally, you draft some cards, you play some cards, you fight your neighbors, rinse and repeat. It's probably about a half-hour game. It's simple to understand. The cards are all a little bit unique and weird, but and that's really where the own complexity is. The other thing that's interesting about it is that cards are not permanent. They don't get killed in battle, but each turn, at the end of your turn, any cards that you drafted get an age token on them, and at the end of the next turn, they die. Huh. So whatever you get is just temporary. There are a couple cards that will modify that. There's like, I don't know, the Fountain of Youth that can take an age token off a card, or there's a Necromancer who can have bonus attacks, but he puts an aging token on another one of your models, and it's basically yeah. another resource you can play shenanigans with. But it looks like a good, uh, clean, fast-playing one if you just have a quick time and you want to get some some drafting in. Yeah, the rules are so much shorter than Seven Wonders. You don't have a lot of things to explain. Most of the stuff is on the cards, mm-hmm. although it's a little icon-heavy looking at it. I mean, yeah, so true. Seven Wonders, for that matter. Oh, true. You yeah, know, true. fundamentally, it's like, this is stone, this is wood, this is meat, this is time. Yeah. The art is very pretty. It's kind of minimalist, but it works. Almost a kind of South Parky, right? It looks like little, a little pieces bit, of yeah, paper. Some of them definitely look like that kind of cut paper art. Oh, yeah. I'm hoping we'll get to play it soon. We are going to do it this morning, but everyone was safe. And Mike's possibly dead. Don't worry, he's definitely not buried in the backyard. <laughs> I totally believe you. I'm glad. That's good. It's good that you believe me, Brian. It's I mean, important. It's good that you are on record believing It is him. important <laughs> that you believe me. Safety that it is important <laughs> I mean, that you believe me. He was referring to it as the murder house last <laughs> night, but I think that was just a joke. The last game we wanted to touch on is one that Joe and I played through recently and Frank and Jason have not. And it's a bit of a legacy game, so there's a little bit of spoiler potential, so we'll talk carefully around it. It's not really a drafting heavy game, but we wanted to talk about it because it's interesting and we want to talk about it. This is The King's Dilemma, which came out in 2019 from the Horrible Guild, designed by Hjalmar Hach and Lorenzo Silva. And this is a story-driven legacy game in which each player represents the noble houses of a particular kingdom, and each game is the reign of one king. The basic mechanic of the game is each turn, someone picks a card from the deck of events, reads it out. It's like, hey, there are some religious heretics in this town, and they're starting to get really popular. Do we send in the military to break them up, or do we let them do what they want to do? And it will give you sort of a hint on the front of the card. Well, if you send in the military, it will be good for law and order and bad for morale. And if we let them be, it will be good for morale, but there will be some kind of sticker with a bad permanent effect on it. This sounds really a lot like a mobile game I played uh, called Reigns. Yeah, the original designer of Reigns was, in fact, Bruno Feduti. Sorry, no, he wasn't He wasn't the designer of Reigns, but he was doing a board game version of Reigns. Oh, That's okay. what it is. And it. so, yeah, when he started doing that, he heard about The King's Dilemma and was like, okay, this is also obviously inspired by Reigns. But he sort of found out a little bit more about it, and they're going in different directions with it. So, I mean, there don't appear to be any hard feelings or anything like that. But yeah, there is definitely that vibe, and Joe and Mike mentioned that connection repeatedly during the game. 
So anyway, you make your decision and each person votes on it and you can spend a certain number of power points to go yay or nay. And if whichever side wins, whoever on that side spent the most of their power to get it passed or failed basically is responsible for whatever happens. So if a sticker <laughs> comes on the board, they sign it. Oh, uh, oh no. Know, if, if, you know, <laughs> there's a big plot event that happens, they sign it. There's like six different storylines woven through the game. And like when one of them resolves, it'll be like whoever signed the most cards in this gets a particular bonus or penalty or special <laughs> power or hey, whatever hey, it is. Mike, remember when you did this? <laughs> yes. Yes. The crows will definitely come home to roost on this one. The drafting part of it is actually relatively minor. At the start of each game, there's a hand of, I guess, goal cards or roll cards, you might call them. And basically it will say, you get points for having a lot of money. You get points for having all of the resources be on the positive end of the track. Or you get points if a lot of things are negative and a lot of things are positive. Because when a political decision is made, there's like five or six different categories of like military and morale and education and that kind of thing. And they will go up or down based on the decisions you make. And their relative position at the end of the game is where you score most of your points at the end of a game. And that's based on those cards that you draft through at the beginning of the game. It's just a single hand that goes around. Got it. Okay. And then the game ends when the king dies. And it will basically be, if a certain number of cards are played out, the king will eventually just die of natural causes. But whenever one of your resources goes up or down, the sort of overall kingdom status tracker goes up or down as well. And if it gets to either end of the scale, meaning everything's been really good or really bad, the king will either resign and say, oh, the council's doing a great job, you guys do it, <laughs> or will get murdered by the people because everything is horrible. And then whoever wins the game is, is the king for the next... Uh... Quick question. Mm -hmm. Can the king marry a horse in this game? No, sadly, there is yes. no horse marrying. Although there are some interesting things that happen, which I will not specify for spoiler reasons. It's an interesting game. I quite enjoyed it. The story is neat. There's a lot of interesting things that happen in the kingdom. Each house kind of has its particular goals, both from a story standpoint and, you know, you get sort of achievements over the course of the game by accomplishing certain things. Like I said, each of these six storylines will end at some point and... Each of the possible endings of those storylines is an achievement for one of the houses. Okay. My house goal was to... <laughs> and I had no idea what that meant at the start of the game. Okay. But as we started getting into some of these plot lines, it's like, oh, they're working on... Ooh, I bet the... So I spent a lot of my resources kind of forced things in one particular direction. Okay. And, you know, if a story had ended a certain way, I would have gotten that achievement. As a game, it's... Sounds kind of meh. Fine. Yeah, I mean, the actual gameplay isn't that exciting. I think to get the most out of it, you really kind of need to roleplay it a little bit. You yeah. sort of need to embrace the gestalt of your house and get into the arguing. I think it really wants the full five players. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I that's got it. Okay. The, yeah, that's the one of the things that I definitely found after playing it is that the game is has a lot of entertaining moments for sure. My favorite moment was a time I looked at the game board and I was like, hey guys, this thing might happen next round. So therefore, we should go do this thing instead. And everyone's like, cool, Joe, we agree with you. And then the thing happened on the next round, and it was amazing. <laughs> and it was really good timing. It would have cost our kingdom a lot if we hadn't done that. There's a lot of cool moments like that. It's composed of very cool moments. As a game, I agree with you, Frank, that, like, it's okay. It's a little point fiddling. You move, you move <laughs> things left and right, and points pop Mechanically, out. it's not that exciting, but the storyline is interesting enough. And it's interesting enough that I am looking forward to playing through the campaign again. Okay, I'm going to have to buy this stupid freaking game. <laughs> The campaign is 15 games more or less. Basically, when you get to the end of all six storylines, the campaign is over. Then there is an end game thing. Which and, also needs five. Right. 
you are given very little information about the end game in the rules. Depending on how well you do in each individual game, which takes maybe 45 minutes, you will get at the end some number of either glory points, which means, yeah, you're doing real well, or uh, what they call crave points, which generally means you're not doing well and you're sort of hungry for power and <laughs> revenge. And what they tell you at the beginning is that both of those are going to be valuable at the end. Generally, having more glory points is good if the kingdom overall is working with a theme of unity and cohesion. And crave points are more valuable overall if the kingdom is full of strife and discord. <laughs> the end game, I think, in our campaign was probably the least satisfying part of it. I agree. Again, I don't want to go into too much detail, but it sort of became an exercise in math at the end. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's conceptually interesting. I think it would be more interesting with five, but we sort of knew who was going to win the game before the end game started, and yeah. we were right. Hmm. Sounds like a but I think game. five players would make it interesting, <laughs> and I still think the story is worth exploring. So, not really a drafting game, but it's a thing we played recently that we wanted to talk about. Don't take my negativeness around the game. I think it's a totally cool experience. Everyone should do it if they have the time and the, the capability. But it needs five, and there are a couple of things that if I had to wave a magic wand of designerness over the game, that I would have the designers spell out a little more because it would feel less surprising. It's not useful surprises. Hmm. Yeah, there are definitely some specific things we want to make sure people know at the start of the next campaign that Ooh, were not okay made then. clear to us. The other thing is that this game can get a little dark. You are noble houses and you are all kind of assholes. <laughs> I mean, it's nice to say at the start of the game, well, you know, let's be the good guy. Let's make all these moral choices. And there are a number of cases where A, all of your choices are horrible <laughs> oh. and or B, you do what you think is the right thing, and the law of unintended consequences strikes that you made things even worse. Let's make oh, you play it even more, honestly. So, no. <laughs> I honestly had a great time going through the story. There was one particular moment when there was uh, an event that came up, and everybody was like, oh my god, that's horrible. Why would we support that? And I just slowly slid a whole bunch of power in the table to support it, and I was like, shut up, you don't need to know. <laughs> because I thought it was going to be on the path that... Oh, yeah. The writing is very clever. The writing is very yes, clever. I think I would maybe the best way to put it. The writing is very clever. And I would say that if you treat it as a kind of mechanical exercise of I will vote for the thing that gets me the most points, it's going to be pretty dry and not exciting. But if you embrace the story and are willing to chew the scenery a little bit, I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Hmm. Ryan, just to be honest with you, you ate babies in this game, didn't you? Spoilers. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> la, 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 la. I'm not. He's so angry that he didn't, though. So angry. I mean, it was a modest proposal, but... Uh... <laughs> All right, well, that's it for uh, this month's episode. Thank you all for sticking with us. We will be back with another episode talking about games. We always want to hear about what kinds of games you want to hear us talk about. So Keep those cards and letters coming. Fill out that poll. Do those iTunes reviews if you have the time. We love it. And we will talk to you next month. Fun. Bye. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. You have failed us for the last time, Werend.